What are the forces shaping Canada's policy toward Venezuela? What is the Canadian International Council, and why does it hold the governments of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro principally responsible for the Venezuelan crisis? How do ordinary Venezuelans make sense of the problems facing their country and the efforts by the Trump administration to rescue them? What techniques are being used by Western media and by opposition supporters in the diaspora to conceal the truth on the ground in Venezuela? How can and should Canada alter its Venezuela policy to keep with a more moral and respectful engagement with the country's population? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we host another discussion on the situation in Venezuela with a special emphasis on Canada's role in the crisis. In our first half hour, Canadian foreign policy critic Eve Engler provides some insights into Canada's particular interests in Venezuela, as well as background on a specific Canadian think tank which is acting to shape Canadian policy in an imperialistic direction. Then we hear from two Canadian journalists, Ava Bartlett and Dimitri Lascaris, about what they saw and experienced in Venezuela during their recent visits there, while probing their views of the forces corrupting honest journalism in the country. On this week's episode, Canada and the Propaganda War on Venezuela. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 26th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabega King, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Hundreds of years of French exploitation of her colonies in Africa, of enslaving, raping, ravaging, killing, and plundering Africa's resources, has allowed France and many other European nations to amass insane amounts of stolen assets, with which they built and now boast about their monuments, castles, churches, with which they maintained their empires and today maintain their kingdoms. Theft and plunder are the basis for the rich culture and famous shrines the brave and wise Europeans conceived and built. Notre Dame, a house of Christ, is one of those monuments that would possibly not exist if France would not have had the illegally begotten resources from wars and pillaging the African continent, something which France's neocolonialism continues doing today through the Banque de France's controlled former West and Central African French colonies. Another shameful and ongoing occurrence, nobody dares talk about it, which allows France to rob untold billions from poor African countries, making sure that their development is stunted. It works, as long as they keep puppet dictators in power. That comes from the article Notre Dame, Glory or Shame, by Peter Koenig, posted April 24th, originally published on the New Eastern Outlook. 
Prime Minister Shinzo Abe with Trump in 2017 has vowed to push for a wholesale revision of the Japanese constitution to further boast its military and allow it to play a greater role in global affairs to be enacted before the Tokyo 2020 Summer Olympics. By 2020, I think Japan will have completely restored its status and been making great contributions to peace and stability in the region and the world, he said. This commitment may not be totally unrelated to the timing of the emperor's abdication. Even before he ascends the throne, confusion surrounds the word chosen to define the new imperial era. Japan's foreign ministry says that reiwa means beautiful harmony and not the more assertive and militaristic command or order, as has been suggested. That comes from the article, Emperor Akito's Abdication, A New Era for Japan's Military, by Tom Clifford, posted April 24th. Back on January 5th, 2017, an article in the London-based Financial Times titled, Wave of Spending Tightens China's Grip on Renewable Energy, quoted Tim Buckley, director of the U.S.-based Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis, who cautioned Wall Street, quote, As the U.S. owned the advent of the oil age, so China is shaping up to be unrivaled in clean power leadership today, unquote. A report from the same institute released a year later confirmed yet again that China continues to lead the world in clean energy investment. Learning more about what China is doing to clean the environment and understanding why it is structurally and politically able to do so should open the eyes of environmental activists about what is possible. That comes from the article, Planning Can Save the Planet, China Chooses Renewable Energy, by Sarah Flounders, posted April 24th, originally published on Workers' World. There is a trigger warning on the following article, which listeners might find disturbing. It is estimated that at least 100,000 children, girls and boys, are bought and sold for sex in the U.S. every year, with as many as 300,000 children in danger of being trafficked each year. Some of these children are forcefully abducted, others are runaways, and still others are sold into the system by relatives and acquaintances. Human trafficking, the commercial sexual exploitation of American children and women via the internet, strip clubs, escort services, or street prostitution, is on its way to becoming one of the worst crimes in the U.S., said prosecutor Krishna Patel. This is an industry that revolves around cheap sex on the fly with young girls and women who are sold to 50 men each day for $25 apiece, while their handlers make $150,000 to $200,000 per child each year. This is not a problem found only in big cities. That comes from the article, The Essence of Evil, Sex with Children Has Become Big Business in America, by John W. Whitehead, posted April 24th, originally published on the Rutherford Institute. The Spanish Spring complained about the EU straitjacket, or austerity, but failed to see the U.S. straitjacket, imperialism. The Americans, therefore, seem to have Spanish sovereignty truly trapped. The basic fact is that Spain joined the USA, 1953, before it joined the EU, 1986. So for Spain to be free, it is necessary to go back to the source of the slavery, the 1953 Pact of Madrid. If Spain destroys this, then the liberation will follow, the liberation from the US, the EU, and the king. 
That comes from the article, Spanish Politics is U.S. Geopolitics, by Aidan O'Brien, posted April 24th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The starting point of populist uh, political thought is that there's a fundamental division in the society between some group of citizens that are inherently good and some inherently citizens that are up for themselves and that are, that are inherently, uh, inherently bad. That is how uh, Chavez and Maduro imagined their country uh, to be. Even as the economic crisis got worse and worse, the, the instinct was always to blame the other side and to seek the total defeat of the other side politically. The constant response to the economic crisis was always a political one. There must be some way that we can further remove power from those people in our society. And once we do so, once they're totally defeated and totally marginalized, then we can start looking at the economics of the country. That was Ben Rouswell, Canadian ambassador to Venezuela from 2014 to 2017 and current president of the Canadian International Council, a foreign relations think tank which engages Canadians on foreign policy issues. He spoke at a Winnipeg venue to a popular audience on April 3, 2019. In his presentation, Rouswell posits that Maduro and his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, have engaged in a form of divisive populist politics, which keeps their political party in power while failing to take responsibility for bad decision-making that put the country in crisis. Rouswell and the CIC are aligning with a broad consensus within Canada's power structure, downplaying, if not ignoring, corporate ambitions in the country. Canada, under Prime Minister Trudeau, has joined with the U.S. and the Lima Group of countries in calling for the ouster of elected President Maduro and the recognition as the legitimate president of Juan Guaido, an opposition leader aligned with corporate interests seeking to reverse the Bolivarian Revolution. To take a closer look at these elite institutions framing Canada's hostile Venezuela policy, we're joined once again by Eve Engler. He's a Montreal-based activist and author of eight books on Canadian foreign policy. We started our conversation with Engler's analysis of what exactly drives Canada's policy toward Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, the Trudeau government has taken a very aggressive position to try to uh, overthrow Venezuela's government. Um, for a whole series of reasons, of course, uh, Canada's alignment with uh, U.S. imperialism is, is one of those reasons, a, a significant one. But I think there's also a, a number of uh, particular uh, corporate reasons. Um, there's a number of Canadian mining companies that have had their um, their concessions, gold gold concessions, that were withdrawn from uh, um, uh, by the Chavez government, um, and uh, a couple of those companies pursued the Venezuelan government for, for large sums of money at International uh, Investment Tribunal. The one that received the most attention is uh, Crystal X, which received a $1.3 billion uh, uh, award from uh, International Tribunal um, that the Venezuelan government has to pay it that sum. So Venezuela, not only does it have stance of uh, oil reserves, um, and there was some Petro Canada, for instance, a Canadian company had its operations essentially nationalized in 2007 in Venezuela. Um, uh, but uh, not only does it have major oil reserves, 
um, it has substantive gold reserves. And Canadian mining companies uh, were big players in Venezuelan uh, gold. And um, beyond the specifics of some Canadian um, mining companies that have had their operations uh, hurt in Venezuela, um, more broadly, Canadian mining uh, dominates throughout the hemisphere. Tens and tens of billions of dollars of Canadian mining investment uh, in Peru and Ecuador and Mexico and Colombia. And uh, Canadian mining companies operating in those countries um, are threatened by the nationalistic uh, resource policies that the, uh, the Chavez and Maduro government uh, have pursued. Uh, and so they have an interest in weakening um, this government that, uh, that represents a, a threat to their, uh, to their ability to, uh, to dominate um, natural resource policy in, in, uh, in the hemisphere. And people have to understand that, you know, if you look back 25 years ago, there was very limited Canadian mining investment in Mexico and Peru. And it's really with the neoliberal reforms of the 1990s um, that's enabled this just incredible growth of Canadian mining investment in the hemisphere. So, so it's not um, it's not something that's you know, outside of the bounds politically to go back in the other direction of more uh, nationalistic um, uh, resource policy. So, Canadian mining companies are are, are you know threatened um, uh, very clearly by governments that that go in in that direction. Hmm. Now. Uh, there have been uh, there, there's been not only mainstream media uh, delinquency, if you I could put it that way, when it comes to uh, you know capturing the actual picture, but th- there's also certain sorts of think tanks or, or uh, organizational groups. I mean, one group is uh, the called the Canadian International Council, and their president, uh, former ambassador to Venezuela, is uh, Ben Rouswell. He was in Winnipeg. Uh, on April 3rd. Maybe you could help us understand a, a little bit about who Ben Rouswell and, and particularly the Canadian International Council, you know, what, what they're all about. Are, are they a, a neutral uh, uh, observer in all of this? So Ben Rouswell um, has clearly aligned himself with opposition uh, in, in Venezuela. Um, he is somebody who has been, uh, I think, a fairly sophisticated um, uh, proponent of uh, Canadian uh, push for the overthrow of the Maduro government. He's tried to frame it as, first of all, at some points he's tried to say, you know, it's recently one of the one of the ways to justify Canadian policy to say, well, the Maduro government pursued some undemocratic uh, decisions, you know, a year and a half ago, and so we've had to uh, to you know uh, try to get rid of this government. When in fact, as Roswell and other forums have stated, um, they've been backing opposition for uh, for since since he got there as an, as ambassador um, and in fact it goes it predates that so so he's been put, putting that argument forward um, which is a disingenuous argument because it's a, there's a long-standing Canadian hostility to the Chavez slash Maduro government also um, he's tried to frame uh, Canada's uh, role in the Lima group of uh, uh, countries um, right-wing governments mostly in South America that oppose the Maduro government, Canada's role in setting up the Lima Group um, back in uh, mid-2017, uh, he tried to put, put, present that as sort of anti-American. Canada's doing something um, uh, not tied into Trump's policy of regime change, which is just you know farcical. It's farcical at a general level, but it's also farcical if you look into the fact that you know uh, Mike Pompeo and 
uh, U.S. Secretary of State has spoken at the Lima Group meetings. Technically, the U.S. is not actually part of the Lima Group, uh, but they have been uh, heavily, they've heavily influenced Lima Group uh, uh, policies. Now, the organization that Ben Roswell has, is now heads, the Canadian International Council, is a um, nearly 100-year-old, um, at different points over the past century, most important um, uh, foreign policy uh, think tank in the country. It was initially called the Canadian uh, Institute of International Affairs. Um, um, from its starting, uh, it was tied into uh, the sister organization in Britain, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or otherwise known as Chatham House, um, and its American counterpart, the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, and these are pro-imperial uh, think tanks in the U.S. and in and, and Britain, and the, 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 the Canadian International Council's predecessor was, was the same kind of uh, um, organization. The Prime Minister, Robert Borden, former Prime Minister, was um, it was at his house that it was formally set up. Um, uh, prominent, uh, uh, seldom the, the famous uh, uh, media chain uh, owner of the media chain, um, was at the uh, inaugural meeting. So this is this is a, a group of 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 uh, leading Canadian capitalists and, and uh, um, decision makers and, and uh, ideologues that came to establish this organization. And it's been this important voice. It's been funded by the Canadian government, mostly funded by um, the corporate sector and including American um, foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Carnegie Foundation. Um, it's had a very close connection to external affairs or global affairs Canada and the, the, uh, the move of Roswell as a star Canadian diplomat to the head of the Canadian International Council is just a continuation of that uh, close uh, uh, relations. Um, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, presented as this sort of academic organization that has, I think, 15 chapters across the country, mostly based at, at, um, at universities. Um, but it's really dominated by you know, former um, Canadian diplomats, and uh, you know I would say it's not not it's not like the you know it's not like a neoconservative organization. It's more of a sort of liberal um, uh, interventionist kind of um, um, foreign policy thinking that they they promote. Um, but in in 2006, uh, the, it was the Canadian International Council was formally uh, established, or the Canadian International Institute for International Affairs was collapsed into the Canadian International Council, and that was done led by uh, Jim uh, Basili, who's the you know, founder of Research in Motion, prominent at one point a billionaire. Um, and he was really clear when, when establishing the Canadian International Council that, that the corporate sector uh, would have, um, could, could donate money and would then have uh, input over the, um, over the research that was done and over the sort of ideological orientation of the organization. And, and um, I think that you know, still gets most of its money from uh, half of its money from the, from the corporate sector. What follows is another clip from the former Venezuelan ambassador's Winnipeg talk. The idea that Chavismo had that perhaps we could mobilize the urban poor in a fundamentally different way than representative democracy. There would be you know, neighborhood councils that would make decisions on budget spending in, in, a, in a neighborhood. And so I would attend many of these. And what I observed was that it, there was always one person that controlled those kinds of meetings. And it was always the party official. And it was the, the 
if a neighborhood committee could ever agree on what the funding priorities should be, the money always came from the presidency. And at the end of the day, it was the presidency that decided. It was always top-down. Even these supposedly bottom-up structures were always uh, top-down. And if you look at what's happened in Venezuela right now, the people that are suffering the most are the urban poor. So after 20 years of having a government who said, we only care about that class of Venezuelans and we are willing to, to completely ignore or actively hurt the rest of the population in order to advance the interests of the urban poor, the urban poor are poorer and more powerless and more subject to human rights abuse now than they were before. I would argue it's the same thing with Trump. Think about where the sort of heartland of his base is. In the Deep South or Appalachia or the, the rural white poor are poorer now than when he became president and they're steadily getting poorer and they certainly don't have any more voice in, uh, in the politics of the United States. If anything, they're getting more and more marginalized. That is the logic of populism because while populists claim to be serving the people, they actually are uh, serving themselves. When I had a chance to speak with Mr. Rouswell, he was saying that uh, the Canadian International Council uh, engages the broader population, the broader public, to help shape uh, policy. I mean, I just played you a, a clip of, uh, of, of former Ambassador Rouswell, uh, his presentation at the uh, cafe in which he was uh, indicating that there was something undemocratic about the neighborhood councils that were being devised uh, under Chavez and, and Maduro to advise policy there. I mean, what what are your thoughts about this depiction of the CIC's uh, presentation as uh, as being a, a public engagement that uh, opens itself up to public uh, input? I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's a total lie. Uh, you know, it, it, they do organize public events, but it's oriented towards um, the the reinforcing the establishment narrative of Canadian foreign policy. It's not oriented towards trying to really democratize Canadian foreign policy just by its you know, funding structure and by the individuals who dominate the organization. These are people from the Canadian foreign policy establishment. Uh, and it is, I, I think, slightly ironic that, uh, that Roswell is into you know, criticizing the Chavez government for not being uh, sufficiently sort of... Uh, Democratic-oriented, and is into you know criticizing the efforts of setting up uh, communal councils by saying it's you know too top-down. I mean, I, I don't. I think there's truth in that, of course. There, you know, I think that Venezuelan society, uh, you know, is a pretty hierarchical society still, and there's you know I think legitimate criticisms of the Chavez and Maduro government uh, for you know not uh, doing enough to to try to break um, that hierarchical. Uh, structure, but there was genuine efforts to to uh, diffuse power within the country. There were genuine efforts, and and the attacks that have been going on that Canada has been part of against the Venezuelan government um, in aggressive form in recent months and probably last two years, but in a more passive form over the past you know basically two decades. How, what they have done is they have uh, undermined the government's ability to try to pursue these types of social transformations of, of diffusing power, like through the communal councils. Um, they, they've made the government, particularly the Maduro government, has, has been in, put into a defensive position, which has, which has really led to actually the you know, further centralization of, of, of politics and, and undercut um, the, the initiatives that were trying to, to, you know, to diffuse power uh, uh, locally. 
so, so you know, Roswell uh, played some small parts as Canadian ambassador in this process of undermining those those positive developments. Now, in a more general sense, you know, when he tries to claim that there was no um, benefits to the urban poor, I mean, that's just that's simply not not correct. I mean, you take a look at um, the building of of uh, the. Uh, um, sky, I don't know you call them exactly, sky trolleys into the slum neighborhoods that you know, previously people had to you know, walk up these uh, steep hills in Caracas, and now there's these um, uh, free transport that, that gets them up into their, into their uh, homes um, uh, in a much more faster and safer, safer uh, way. Um, the the uh, moves towards uh, uh, health, um, Cuban doctors, uh, the Barrio Adentro, all kinds of major successes. Some of those have, have been reversed by, you know, the economic sabotage. Um, uh, but there's, we're talking about substantive uh, gains. And, and, and that's why the Maduro government has not, how they, they've been unable to overthrow the government despite this incredible international campaign is because there is still you know, what the proportion of the population is exactly, I don't know, but it's, you know, a good 20, 25% of the population, uh, particularly in the, in the urban poor, um, who, who genuinely benefited from the, from the Bolivarian process and are not willing to just, uh, you know, go in the other direction, even though there's this, you know, incredible campaign from the corporate class domestically and, and internationally. Um, so I think it's, it's incorrect to, to, uh, to just sort of uh, brush off this, this, the efforts of uh, the, the genuine improvement uh, mm. that the, the Bolivarian uh, process brought for not just the urban poor, but uh, uh, poor people, darker-skinned people uh, in the country more generally. How realistic is it that we could see Canadian policy shift uh, away from its current stance towards a more... Uh, a more congenial and, oh, dare I say, international law-abiding uh, uh, policy. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not. Um, unfortunately, it's not uh, that easy to imagine a shift uh, in any sort of short-term sense because there are so many forces that have aligned with this uh, pro-coup position, and that goes from, you know, obviously the government, but the conservative opposition, the, the NDP opposition, uh, has, has um, at least at its official level, uh, as it's, from its foreign affairs critic, has, has supported the coup I mean, with very modest criticisms around the edge. The media has been just cheerleading. Um, the institutions like the Canadian International Council, uh, the Canadian Council for the Americas, if you look at most of the sort of academic institutions dealing with foreign policy, they are um, tied into the corporate sector, tied into uh, Global Affairs Canada, um, tend to be very close to official dipl- diplomatic position. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there is this um, solidarity movement across the country, and, and, and it has had some small uh, successes in terms of taking, bringing people out to demonstrations and stuff. Um, but, you know, even, even our allies within the NDP, people like Nikki Ashton and Ben Robinson, what we're talking about is people who've put out, like, one tweet. Nikki Ashton's put out, like, one tweet that was a good tweet, critical of Canadian policy, but no sort of sustained uh, uh, engagement. I mean, Canada has just announced another round of sanctions against uh, Venezuela that um, the Venezuelan government condemned as being illegal and said it was about 
supporting the Trump administration's war efforts on Venezuela. Um, I didn't see any um, echoing of, of that position or, or, or you know, criticism of Canada's fourth round of sanctions against Venezuela by, by any opposition uh, figures. Um, so, so, no, it is an uphill battle. Um, uh, but we, what we can also say is that, you know, within Venezuela, clearly the population is not buying into this uh, foreign uh, regime change uh, effort. I mean, clearly, um, uh, you know, there is some support for Juan Guaido's position. There's no doubt about that. But, but there's uh, the majority, the strong majority of the population is not on board for um, this, this, uh, this effort to, to overthrow the government. Um, um, so, you know, for us who are not facing this uh, incredible uh, economic and political sabotage, um, you know, we are in a relatively privileged position. It's difficult. We have a big uphill battle. But we certainly, I think, people of, of, uh, of you know, humanist, uh, internationalist uh, disposition um, should be doing what we can to, to pressure, um, you know, the politicians, the media, the different institutions in this country to uh, stop supporting this uh, this effort to overthrow the government of Venezuela. Eve Angler, thanks again for uh, taking the time to uh, share your thoughts with our listeners. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Eve Angler, Montreal-based activist and author. Uh, you can uh, see more of his articles at the website eveangler.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In an era when propaganda and fake news is flourishing, we feel the need to get as much of an on-the-ground perspective as possible and have brought into uh, two Canadian journalists who have been to Venezuela since Juan Guaido, uh, the leader in the National Assembly, declared himself in the role of interim president. That's back in January. Uh, Dimitri Lascaris is a lawyer, journalist, and activist, a former partner in one of Canada's leading class action law firms, Siskins LLP. Dimitri was named by Canadian Lawyer Magazine as one of the 25 most influential lawyers in Canada, and in 2013 he was named by Canadian Business Magazine as one of the 50 most influential persons in Canadian business. Retired from Siskins as of 2016, he is now a correspondent and board member of the Real News Network and the chair of the Board of Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East. And Dimitri Lascaris reported on the ground from Venezuela in recent weeks. Uh, he joins us in the CKUW studio following his talk here in Winnipeg. Uh, good morning, Dimitri. Thank you for having me, Mike. And uh, Ava Bartlett is an award-winning Canadian journalist and activist. She has spent years on the ground covering conflict zones in the Middle East, most notably Syria and Palestine. She's recipient of the 2017 International Journalism Award for International Reporting presented by the Mexican Press Club. And she blogs at ingaza.wordpress.com. She recently spent nearly a month in Venezuela uh, and has been reporting on the ground and is uh, here to share her observations. And uh, she'll be speaking at a couple of events uh, coming up shortly. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ava. Thank you for having me. If a Canadian could go, had, were able to, to go with you to Venezuela, what would they be most surprised to, uh, the, the most surprising revelation? I, I guess for me personally, uh, I was astonished not to see, uh, not only did I not see people starving, uh, I didn't see any homeless people. And, you know, I did a lot of walking when I was in Caracas. I was only there for a week, and to be clear, I didn't leave the city. 
Uh, there were certainly large parts of the city I wasn't able to see within the space of a week. It's a very large, populous city. But, uh, you know, for example, the first day that I was there, I participated or uh, attended both a pro-opposition and a uh, pro-government rally, which were held simultaneously at about four subway stops apart. And uh, I started out at the pro-government uh, rally, and I walked seven kilometers uh, with uh, anti-government protesters who were openly insulting the president and his family and openly calling for him to be removed from power by the military. Uh, I did not see a single uh, homeless person along, along that entire route. Also, I did not see a single soldier, armed soldier. I did not see a single police officer in riot gear. Uh, so not only uh, was I suddenly struck with an impression that's very uh, different from the claim that millions of people are starving and eating out of trash in Venezuela, but I also didn't see any, uh, you know, uh, apparent repression of uh, quite troubling, you know, call on the part of these thousands of people for the government to be overthrown by the military. Uh, you know, I, I've attended numerous protests in the West, Canada, the United States, Western Europe. It's routine to see masses of riot police. Sometimes in Montreal, the riot police outnumber the protesters. You know, and it's, uh, and, you know, the other day when I came back, I stayed in Toronto for one, for one day. I had a speech to do there. And I, I walked from my hotel uh, to the train station to leave that day. It was, a space, it was a distance of one kilometer. And I counted the number of homeless people I saw. I saw, and this was minus 10 degrees Celsius. I saw 10 people sleeping in sidewalks within the space of one kilometer, walking through the wealthiest part of what arguably the wealthiest part of the country, Bay Street. And I didn't see anything like that when I was in Caracas. That's amazing. Ava, would you, uh, do you have anything to add, or could you maybe corroborate some of what uh, Dimitri just said? Yeah, absolutely. I would echo uh, what Dimitri said. I, I arrived a few days into the electricity crisis. I arrived on March 10th. And so, um, and I was familiar with uh, Caracas, having lived there back in 2010. And so what I saw was um, a city that was very similar to what I knew from 2010, because the power was out, it did affect the metro, and the metro serves um, around 3 million people per day. So the streets were emptier, but that said, in a city that was supposed to be under crisis and in chaos, I saw normal streets, some shops were open, some restaurants were open. Um, and I, I, spent, um, well, I spent from March 10th to April 1st in, in Caracas, and I was able to move around quite a bit around the city. Um, I spent a lot of time in the west. I also walked to the eastern areas. The eastern areas are generally wealthier, upper-class, pro-opposition areas. Um, and the western areas are generally uh, impoverished barrios, although you can find them all over. And um, I found, in, I went to Patari, which is known as the largest slum in Latin America. And even in the, in the hills of Patari, in uh, the, the 5th of July barrio, I saw shops selling chicken and fresh produce. So I think that this is one of the most... Um, astounding lies that has been perpetuated in the media is that there's no food in Venezuela. What, what the media is not making clear is that, yes, there's food. However, the poor segments of society can't necessarily afford to shop where the wealthy shop. But there are governmental um, uh, programs uh, implemented to subsidize the, the poor who can't afford to shop there, so they get these monthly um, food boxes. And there's other programs, local uh, collectives do programs to help people to sell affordable produce. And I saw one of these in the district of Katia, where I went to a commune. And, and in this particular commune, a few years ago, they produced, uh, according to them, 17 tons of produce, which they then sold to the community at um, 30 to 50 percent of the market price. So there's a lot of things going on, very positive developments going on in Caracas that we don't hear about in the media. Also, for example, urban agriculture. 
Um, I visited one plot called Bolivar One, and it had um, a number of youth from a nearby housing mission working on the land, growing beautiful, fresh produce. Um, so there were, uh, to highlight the positive things, but then I tried to go to um, opposition marches. I tried twice on March 16th and March 30th. Both days there were large pro-government rallies, and on the 16th I walked for several hours with a pro-government rally, and it was it was a festive rally. It included people that you don't generally hear from on, on Western media, people that were very openly supportive of Maduro, but also very aware of what the U.S. has been doing to Venezuela, the economic war, the sanctions. And um, after that, I tried to go to the opposition march, and they just never materialized that day. On March 30th, I actually um, flagged down a motorcycle taxi and, and asked the, the driver to take me to these different points where opposition supporters had said marches would start. And I, going, I went around for an hour, and I couldn't find any. I found a group of Maduro supporters. And finally, in eastern Caracas, in Chacao and Altamira, I found like a dozen and a couple of dozen uh, opposition supporters. So it, it's unfortunate because I, I wanted to hear what they had to say. Um, one person did come up to me and say that Maduro was responsible for the electricity crisis, uh, in his opinion. But other than that, they were just um, waving flags and not saying a whole lot. And then if you contrast that to what, what I and I'm sure Dimitri was hearing in, in pro-government marches, people are very aware of their history and they're very politically aware. Um, the other thing is just that uh, while I was in Caracas, the power did cut a second time. And again, the government said this is due to sabotage. Um, but still the city was functioning. And I think something that's important to highlight is that there was no chaos. Um, during the first power cut, which lasted uh, five or six days, People were lined up quietly, waiting patiently at ATMs or at, at places dispensing water. And I didn't see uh, any of the, the chaos that Western media was insisting was happening and that we need to save Venezuelans from. Mm. Uh, Dimitri, I just wanted to give you a chance to sound in there because uh, I know that you did have a chance to speak to some uh, anti-Maduro supporters. Mm -hmm. And was there anything notable about the things that they told you? Sure, a number of things uh, stood out for me. I had to uh, uh, go uh, into a wealthier part of the city, uh, Altimira, uh, and uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful day, and uh, I, I and my translator walked up a, a small hill, or really a small mountain, uh, to, to go to a place called the Villa Park, where I was told I was going to find, by my translator, uh, you know, plenty of people who were opposed to the Maduro government. It wasn't easy. A lot of people uh, were reluctant to speak to us, but eventually we got six or seven to speak to us. Um, one common theme, uh, and, and all of them, uh, to varying degrees, were critical of the Maduro government. Uh, one common theme was corruption, the failure on the part of the government to deal with the problem of corruption. I also heard that, by the way, uh, from Maduro supporters. They felt that he could have done a better job in dealing with uh, the, the very serious problem of corruption, which is longstanding in Venezuela. Another uh, sentiment that I heard was uh, a lot of opposition to the fact, you know, Eva mentioned that the government is subsidizing uh, food purchases by the poor. Um, they were angry about that. You know, I, one woman referred to these people who are recipients of this aid as parasites and uh, claimed that uh, Chavez and Maduro had created a class of parasites in, in Venezuela. Uh, needless to say, she wasn't poor. <laughs> she, she had a, a good job, good paying job, and she looked like somebody who was well off. Uh, another woman, a, a young lady uh, who was from Venezuela, but who spoke with an impeccable Ac uh, English accent. She sounded like she was from the United States. She dressed like a young American teen. 
she she broke down, started crying, and told me that uh, one of her friends had been killed in an anti-government protest. Whether there were you know exactly the circumstances in which that person, that young man, was killed, I, I have no idea. But she was very upset about that. Uh, interestingly, after they you know sort of voiced to varying degrees their criticisms of Maduro, I then asked them about Hugo Chavez and what they thought about his legacy. And I got a quite different reaction. Only one person of the, in that group uh, was equally critical of Chavez as uh, she was of uh, Maduro. That was the lady who referred to the poor receiving aid as parasites. Uh, she just couldn't stand Chavez. The other ones, uh, to varying degrees, they either showed grudging respect or just outright adulation. Uh, you know, one lady who was very critical of Maduro said that Chavez was an, an presidente excelente. You know, she couldn't say enough good things about him. Uh, another man, uh, a very soft-spoken man, very critical of Maduro, said that, you know, he was the right man for that time. That's the way he put it. And the second question I asked them after I, can, I sort of canvassed their views about uh, Chavez was, what do you think about Donald Trump's claim that he is acting in the interests of the uh, human rights and the welfare of the Venezuelan? To be real, what this is really about is Venezuela's massive resources. And we're fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. So not even the government critics and opponents are buying the Western narrative, particularly Donald Trump's narrative, about his motives for uh, intervening in the internal affairs of the state. Interesting. And what uh, then are, are they saying, if anything, about Canada? Because Canadians, the Canadian foreign minister certainly have been very much, very robust in their support for Guaido and uh, rejection of, anti, uh, of Maduro as a, uh, you know, this thug and uh, dicta dictator and, and whatnot. The people I spoke with didn't really have any knowledge about Canada's role, unfortunately. I, I did hear some things about Canada. Uh, you know, there wasn't any hostility expressed, even by the government supporters that I spoke to, the many government supporters I spoke to, to the people of Canada. Uh, they were critical about Canadian government policy. And, uh, but it wasn't really a hostility. It was, uh, they, they, one, one, one sentiment that I heard repeatedly from government supporters was gratitude that uh, somebody from Canada, a journalist from Canada, had come to see what was actually happening in the country. And, and they asked me, uh, very graciously, please go back to the Canadian people and tell them this. When I was, I went to Bolivar Square one day when, uh, after Maduro had called upon citizens to come uh, and sign a petition denouncing U.S. imperialism, uh, and I, that was a day on which I spoke to a great many supporters of the government. And by the way, on that hot day, I watched hundreds of people line up throughout the day to sign a petition, and the line just got longer and longer and longer. And days later, that line was still uh, consisted of hundreds of people, which was quite interesting to see as a Canadian. Uh, but when I was uh, when I was there talking to the people about uh, you know Canada, they were uh, they were saying you know please go back and tell people what you see here today, that we are opposed to foreign intervention in our country. We know that your people are not getting that message, and we think that if they're told the truth, uh, the Canadian government's policies will have to adapt to the reality on the ground. Eva, I'm curious about some of the parallels between what you experienced on the ground in Syria and what you experienced recently in Venezuela, particularly, uh, you know, these, uh, <laughs> these different narratives. Um, but in, in particular, I remember when you were in Syria, you were talking about the uh, going into, uh, you know, the, the medical centers and, and speaking to the doctors there. What were you hearing from some of the, the medical people uh, in the centers that you visited? Uh, I'm seeing parallels in the escalated uh, war propaganda, the absurd rhetoric we're hearing about Venezuela. And it seems like it's a common theme, and I'm quite frankly surprised that 
people um, still believe this when it comes to Venezuela, because we've seen this type of rhetoric, uh, you know, with Iraq, Libya, Syria, etc. Um, so the, the vilification, the, the intense vilification of the leadership, um, so that people unquestionably um, despise the leader without really knowing why they despise the leader, but also the disappearing of these voices that would negate the narrative being pumped by Western media. So in the case of Syria, for example, I believe what you were referring to was in 2016 before Aleppo was liberated, and there was a lot of media hype about last hospitals and last doctors and last pediatricians in Aleppo. And at that time, in, in June 2016, I went to Aleppo, and I went to the Aleppo Medical Association, and they said, no, actually we have over 4,100 doctors, among whom were 800 specialists. So reality on the ground was quite different from what the media was uh, pumping out. In Venezuela, I did go to one hospital. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to a lot. I was doing many things, but I went to a hospital in a community called Las Prisas in western Caracas, and um, it's, a, it's a small it's like a small, not well-off community, and the hospital was small itself. Very clean. Um, they had a, a impressive backup generator. They had medicines. I, I wasn't. My, unfortunately, I don't have the Spanish that I have in uh, the abilities to communicate in Spanish as I do in Arabic. But um, I was able to see that the hospital was functioning, and that during the power outages, the generator. I was told by somebody who was with me, the generator was on right away. There was um, a water cistern behind the hospital where people were coming to get. Um, water for their homes. So I think the thing to highlight is that hospitals are functioning. I can't speak for the whole country, but I think we should be wary when we hear this extreme rhetoric um, about everything being chaos. And I can think of one example. I think it was France 24 channel. There was a journalist who did, uh, who actually published a series of photos claiming to be in Venezuela now or recently and showing disturbing scenes of babies in baskets on floors and chaotic hospital scenes. And um, another person actually investigated that and found that some of these photos did occur in Venezuela years prior, others weren't in Venezuela. And that, again, reminds me of Syria and the case of Medaya, which also in 2016 was the focus of, of media propaganda, um, focusing on the issue of starvation, which was occurring, but not, not explaining why there was starvation, which as in the case of Eastern Ghouta, as in the case of Aleppo, it always came down to the fact that the people that controlled the food uh, were terrorist groups. Um, so I think the, the parallels I'm seeing, Michael, are this extreme, um, is this extreme rhetoric and propaganda that, that should be indicators, even for people who are skeptical of the Venezuelan government, you should at least see these common indicators that are always preludes to attempts to regime change. How did both of you make sense of the fact that there are uh, uh, correspondents, like mainstream media correspondents, CBC, The Guardian, whatever, on the ground, seeing the same things that you're seeing, and yet their reporting is, is very different? I mean, what, where do you see those failures coming into play? How do you make sense uh, of that? I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I believe they're intentionally lying. There have been numerous cases in Syria. There's the case of the... German journalist, um, I can't remember which publication, who it turned out after winning so many awards for his journalism, had fabricated much of the, uh, de the details and the people in his articles. And I've seen instances of journalists from the BBC twisting the truth, for example, about mortars that were landing in Damascus that had killed a child and injured 60, 
And she, she twisted the facts and said uh, it's believed by the people that the government, the regime, is launching these mortars and missiles, and that's completely false. Um, in, in the case, of, I'll just keep this short so that um, you can speak, but uh, in the case of Venezuela, um, I, I think it's the same, a, a, a decision to toe the line, um, to, to sorry, promote this narrative that is serving the U.S.'s interests. But uh, Abby Martin did such an excellent um, expose, I guess, when she was there showing the various different um, media and newspapers in Venezuela and how many of them are, are right-wing opposition media. And for a place that is supposed to be a dictatorship, they're very vocal about their dislike of the government. And just one other point I'd like to make just on the dictatorship theme. When I was there, um, near the end of my stay, I saw on Twitter that there were guarimbas being set up in an area of Caracas, and I'd read about these, and the term, I can't give the exact definition, but it pertains to these violent street protests that took place in 2017 and years prior, where even people were burned alive by opposition supporters. So I, I hired a motorcycle taxi, and I went to the area where uh, barricades had been set up. The interesting thing was, these barricades, I learned later from Venezuelan journalists, they weren't the political uh, barricades. They were barricades where people literally set things on fire in the middle of streets, disrupted traffic because they wanted a water tanker or something delivered. And the minute it was delivered, they dismantled the barricades. So this is just to say there was no, <laughs> there were no police attacking them. The, the, the National Guard was like hundreds and hundreds of meters back. And um, if this was a dictatorship, I think the scenario would have been very different. Dimitri, uh, I know you're, you're no doubt familiar with the... Uh, like in light of that whole issue of uh, you know journalistic deception, there was that famous incident in February in which uh, the uh, uh, there was a, a USAID trucks coming with aid from Cucuta going into Venezuela, and the, the the mainstream media was putting out this message that it was Maduro burning his own aid aid trucks, but it was uh, you know uh, people like uh, Max Blumenthal and the Gray Zone Project who immediately revealed that this was a uh, the, no it was the opposition forces and, mm -hmm. and you know the thugs that were burning the trucks and and it took New York Times they eventually did change their story but 2 weeks later there was a similar you know extraordinarily misleading report about a bridge uh, mm -hmm. connecting Colombia and Venezuela, which uh, it was claimed Maduro shut down within the past several months to prevent humanitarian aid from entering the country. Uh, I, I got a call from a colleague of mine at The Real News who used to live in Venezuela on the very day when that report emerged. She said, I'm hearing from people that that bridge was never opened. So we, we knew this from, you know, within, within hours of the reports appearing, and weeks went by, and finally the mainstream media began to tell the public, what information that was readily ascertainable at the time, that the bridge had never actually been opened. Uh, and at the same time, they are failing to tell the public that Maduro's the government is in fact working with legitimate nonpartisan uh, international aid organizations in the country, particularly the Red Cross. Uh, understandably, he's very wary uh, about allowing humanitarian aid, uh, which, and we're talking about really tiny amounts of aid when you look at, relative to the devastating impact that the US, U.S. sanctions and Western sanctions are having on Venezuela. You want to help these Venezuelan people, a much easier way to go about it, much more effective would be to lift the sanctions that are detrimentally That's affected. another big hole in mainstream mm -hmm. media. It's, it, everything is Maduro's fault. They never mention the sanctions right. or... Right. Nor, nor, anyway. nor do they mention the fact that the price, you know, 95% of the export earnings in that country come from oil. This is something that I would criticize Chavez for. You know, he, he did try to diversify the economy, but uh, at the time when uh, prices, the price of oil was historically high, 
Uh, I don't think he went as far as he might have been able to go. Uh, and when the price of oil plummeted shortly after, around the time Maduro came to power in 2012, I believe it was, it was, it, it was inevitably going to cause economic hardship to the country. And that has a lot to do with it as well. Okay. I wanted to bring up one, one more point, because uh, I think we're starting to run to the end of our time. But the, uh, the, the role of the, the diaspora, the diasporic Venezuelans, uh, could, could I get each of you to, to, to comment a little bit on, on your thoughts about, uh, you know, who, who these people are, why it seems like they're so uh, uh, radical in their views, even beyond the, the anti-Maduro people in, in Venezuela, it seems. Yeah, well, um, I can tell you I've been subject. I mean, I, I've done a lot of Palestinian solidarity activism. And in that context, I've been subjected to quite intense uh, attacks. Uh, I never thought I would see anything quite as bad as that. But my, my reporting on Venezuela has elicited uh, attacks of a similar nature. Uh, you know, I've received hundreds of extraordinarily hostile uh, tweets uh, from people who purport, you know, these are people, uh, me- the, the majority of them are using fake identities on Twitter. They have very mm-hmm. few followers. Uh, but they, it's like, it, it's literally like, you know, they smell blood in the water and they just attack you in a frenzy. And they, I've been accused of being a paid agent of Maduro. Uh, you know, I, I went to Venezuela on my own dime. I was not compensated. I've never been compensated to report for the real news. I do that on a pro bono basis. Uh, I paid all of my own expenses when I went to Venezuela. Not only was I not compensated for my work, I was not reimbursed a penny. I paid for my own translator. And I'm being accused over and over again of being a paid agent of the Maduro government. Uh, I've been accused of being a commie sympathizer. I've been accused of being an apologist for a mass murderer. I've been accused of defending genocide. Uh, one person, you know, threatened me, said, you know, if you come to Caracas, I'm going to take care of you, something of that nature. So nobody's accused you of burning down the Notre Dame uh, cathedral not, yet? Not, no. not thus far. <laughs> <laughs> Although if it had happened in Venezuela, I might have had to confront that accusation yeah. as well. And so, you know, and, and the other thing I've experienced is people showing up. I've done five uh, speeches in Canada now uh, on, on what I saw in Venezuela, and at two of those in Montreal and Ottawa, uh, it was quite, quite clearly coordinated. Ten people who claim to be, and I have no reason to doubt that they are, uh, expats, former, formerly living in Venezuela, showed up and, you know, just hurled into insults at me nonstop for almost the entire uh, time that I was scheduled to speak. So, Ava, uh, what about yourself? I know you haven't given, I don't believe you've given any talks as of this recording, but uh, you've gotten some pushback uh, on social media, no? Yeah, I mean, I'm accustomed to it from my my work on Syria um, I've gotten a lot of abuse for that, and like Dimitri was saying, basically um, these people are not very original in their slurs because <laughs> an Assad apologist, you're a genocide, the same thing um, on Syria. Um, and I actually didn't uh, think it would be anything. I didn't think there would be anything more aggressive than the feedback I got on Syria. But Venezuela has been even more aggressive, and more intense. Like when I when I started tweeting about Venezuela, I would get, well, go to Venezuela, and then I went to Venezuela, and they'd be like, oh, you're just a Maduro agent, just like Dimitri was saying. Mm-hmm. And likewise, I paid my expenses to go there, and in fact, I, I ended up paying double um, because American Airlines canceled my flight, so I had to um, emergency book a flight on Copa Airlines. And I was staying in a really scuzzy, cheap hotel, and when the power was out, I had no power. And so, I mean, I wasn't living like a Venezuelan. I would never insinuate that, but the point was I was also not living in eastern Caracas, like many of the Western journalists that go to Venezuela are. Um, and yet, these slurs are, are, are thrust at us because we're basically, our voices are challenging what the Western narrative uh, is putting out. And many of these accounts, when you look at, for example, on Twitter, 
they're they're newly created. They have zero followers, so it's a, it's an indication that at least at least some of these accounts are are part of um, if you want to call it a troll army or whatever. But they do they respond immediately when you tweet about this issue about some issue pertaining to Venezuela that doesn't align with the the Western narrative. And I, I think that is a strategy. Um, happily, though, most of my colleagues. Um, don't back down to those kind of uh, intimidations. The other thing I get is like, oh, I really respect your work on Palestine and Syria, but, and then this condescending kind of caveat, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about Venezuela. You don't know what you're talking about. And I'm the first to admit, yes, I'm still learning, but there are some very obvious things. And when you go there and you witness and you talk to people, you can share that. That's undeniable what I've seen and heard. Um, so that it's another tactic to try to intimidate or silence, either by by violence, by direct violence or abusive um, behavior on, online, or by in, insinuating that perhaps you're not being professional or you don't know what you're talking about. But um, I do what I do because I believe in sharing the voices of people who are being uh, marginalized in the media. Mm. And I know that the media is lying. So yeah. like Dimitri said, you know, th- this, this is not about money. This is about doing what we know is right. Uh, if you each had an opportunity to to speak to the Canadian decision makers, what what direction would you give them in terms of what Canadian policy should be towards uh, Venezuela? Eva, uh, maybe you should go first. I would echo what Dimitri said earlier: lift the sanctions. That's number one, and then and stop interfering. It's clearly interference. What Canada has been doing, um, supporting the opposition the way they have been supporting. So lift the sanctions and stop interfering in Venezuela's uh, internal affairs. I don't think that, uh, you know, decision makers in our government are particularly concerned about the human rights of uh, people in Venezuela or any other country, frankly. You know, I would try to appeal to them to the types of things that matter to them and what I would, you know, say what I think would matter to them and something they haven't taken into account is that this could easily devolve if we continue to apply pressure on the Maduro government into a civil war and create massive instability throughout that region. And if they think there's a a migrant problem now in Central America, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what would happen if there were a civil war in Venezuela. And eventually that would have repercussions here. Just as it had repercussions in Europe, all of the warmongering, all of the killing by Western militaries in the Middle East has precipitated a massive refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. And this is destabilizing Europe. Clearly, it's destabilizing Europe, and it's causing the far right to rise right across the continent. In the country that, you know, my parents came from, Greece, Golden Dawn, a virulent neo-Nazi party, is now the third largest party in the Greek parliament. And these people kill, they kill migrants. They beat migrants. Uh, this is happening because, in substantial part, because of the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean. And we will see something similar happen here. There will be a rise in xenophobia. There will be massive instability at the border. Uh, you know, we're going to see the far right gain strength. So perhaps that, you know, if that argument were made to them, perhaps that would move them to adopt a more restrained attitude with respect to Venezuela. We just heard from Dimitri Lascaris, lawyer, activist, and correspondent with The Real News Network, and from award-winning journalist and activist Ava Bartlett. Bartlett will be speaking in Hamilton on Monday, April 29th at 7 p.m. at New Vision United Church, 24 Main Street West. Admission is free. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. 
I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week. <laughs>